Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. It's a pleasure to have with me today, Carolyn Crandall. Hi, Carolyn. Hello there. Carolyn is the chief security advocate at Ativo Networks, not to mention a consistently named top woman in cybersecurity. She has over 25 years of experience in building emerging technology markets in security, networking, and storage industries. Carolyn also has a demonstrated track record of successfully taking companies from pre-IPO through to multi-billion dollar sales, and has previously held leadership positions at Cisco, Juniper Networks, Nimble Storage, Riverbed, and Seagate. So Carolyn, why don't we get started? Can you tell us how you got started in cybersecurity? Yeah. Well, yeah, cybersecurity, I'm sure, was just a bit of a derivative of starting in the networking world. I uh, came into the networking side back when uh, we were moving from uh, SneakerNet <laughs> over to Ethernet. And I think it's just a natural evolution, much like businesses started to think about being connected. You needed to start thinking about securing the technology. And I found cybersecurity to be just a fascinating um, business, right? It's super fun. It's something I could actually explain to the kids. Um, when I grew when I grew up at Cisco, ha, it was early in my career. But when when I was at Cisco, I always was trying to explain to my kids what Cisco did, and eventually just gave up and said, ah, they just make the internet run. <laughs> but nowadays, you can uh, definitely explain what cybersecurity is. And I got introduced to it first, uh, a bit at Cisco, then at Juniper, but 100% dedicated to it at Ativo Networks. So. You being one of the top women in cybersecurity, can you share with us a little bit about how do you think that happened? What do you attribute uh, you know, that, that you did over your career that allowed you to get to where you are today? Yeah. Well, I think with security, cybersecurity, you need to have a good networking background to understand, right? If you know what the components do, you start to understand how they work and then how to secure them. And so um, for me, I think the the choice to go into to um, cybersecurity kind of came in through acquisition with the companies that I worked for. Um, I think Cisco, one of their early acquisitions was PIX firewalls, right? You know, back when you had your, your firewalls as the first technology, you're connected to the internet, you needed to protect your network. And, and then it grew as they expanded. And then uh, Juniper had acquired a company called NetScreen. And again, brought the company into the cybersecurity front. Um, and interestingly enough, the CEO of Ativo Networks, it's my fourth company working with him. And I worked with him very early, not only at Cisco, but at National Semiconductor. So I guess if I really reel my history back, it started back in the semiconductor side of things, um, then Ethernet technology and onto future networking. So I think when people think about, well, did I intend or should I intend to go into cybersecurity? If you're not sure, getting a great stapler background in networking is a fantastic place to be because when you understand the technology and the technical terms, then the ones around cybersecurity will come much more naturally to you um, to understand how it works, um, you know, and, and how you can impact the outcomes of, you know, the 
networking infrastructure being attacked. You know, it's very common thing I hear as I talk to all these leaders in, in our space, they often tell me that they got into cybersecurity accidentally or or through some sort of an acquisition, they weren't necessarily planning for it, uh, which is also very similar with how, how my career progressed. I was never planning to be in cybersecurity, it just so happened. And, and I continued and I was fortunate to be in the space. Speaking about your background, especially with your experience in the semiconductor space, I have a, I have a question that I think is very relevant. Often, I feel like the, the hardware and the chip manufacturers have achieved a state where they know how to build things that are relatively secure, or at least very reliable from, from a performance perspective. So when someone's computer crashes, it's rare for them to be like, hey, let me call Intel and figure out why my computer crashed. They often attribute it to like Apple or Microsoft or whoever built the software and the operating system, because we find often software systems to be more buggy versus the hardware systems, because they have they tend to be very reliable and they have high integrity. Is that what you're seeing today still? And do you think my assumption there is maybe immature or am I accurate there? And if so, how how much longer do you think we have till we have software being very reliable and people don't necessarily immediately jump to software as being the problem? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think software is going to continue to be the problem because there is just so much software and so much code and so many people writing it and so many opportunities to make a mistake or compromise uh, things that um, I think we're going to continue to see software vulnerabilities happen. But even despite that, I think when you look at how a cyber criminal is going to work, they're going to a look for those software vulnerabilities. They're going to look for the human vulnerabilities, which may be the software is working fine. It just gets misconfigured. And therefore, that's the mistake that they're looking for. Um, or they're going to trick people, like with phishing and other things. Um, but the one thing that we have seen a lot recently is the supply chain attacks, right? And that is where your trusted software or hardware that's coming in is is compromised in some way. And it could, again, be something that is in the actual physical hardware. I mean, not as much that we hear about that today, but, but there are vulnerabilities in the software of that um, supplier that causes, again, the problem. And the attackers find it and they exploit it. And then it's a race to patch. And the attackers tend to move very, very quickly, especially under this pressure to disclose, right? You know, there's a vulnerability that's out there or I've been breached and and it's the good and the bad, right? You know, you want everybody to know so that they can put their guard up and protect and patch quickly. But on the other hand, if you have a slower moving organization, you are then at risk because the attackers could be moving faster than you are. And so I do think we have a, a, an environment today that the safest way for a company to operate is that, ex, that uh, assumed breach security posture. Don't trust anything, right? You know, and, and whether you want to get into the zero trust or least privilege, if you create the right um, controls to try to keep the bad guys out, but more importantly, assume that they are in your network already. And so what are you going to do to protect your most critical assets from being tampered with? And what's your early indicator system going to be? How will you know at early stages of the attack versus when they've already conducted their exploit? Because then it's it's too late, right? You know, you're either paying the ransom or have a huge amount of things to clean up. So in the Ativo Network's messaging, I noticed this term called deception technology. Can you explain to us what that really means and how we should be thinking about it? 
Sure, absolutely. And there's deception technology, which has actually been around for 30 years. Um, the honeypot technology um, was first seen about 30 years ago. And it was great, right? You trick the attacker by setting up decoy technology to trick them into thinking it's real. What's changed, though, is, is the way that those systems operate. If you think back 30 years ago, it was very manual. You had very sophisticated people that were operating this technology, very difficult to use and not incorporated into your normal security stack. So limited amount of usefulness, except for for research. If you look at commercial deception platforms today, it's radically changed. Um, a lot of the deployment is now all machine automated. It does a lot of the attack correlation and information, and it's removed those more risky pivot points where the attacker could actually use it back against you. And so if you look at cyber deception today, it's changed in A, yes, the decoys now are automated and easy to use and incorporated so they can share information um, inside of your, your um, security stack, right? So automatically isolate or block things, um, incorporating that information into other security platforms that you may have. But if you think about still wanting to uh, detect that attacker early on, you're going to start with lures out on the endpoint. So what are the attackers going after today? They want your credentials, right? You know, and so they're going to look for artifacts on that endpoint. And that's where the lure technology came out and would breadcrumb them back into a decoy server. Now, what's really flipped deception on its head recently is, is the ability to conceal production assets. And if you think about it before, you were interweaving fake things amongst uh, the real. And now you actually make the real things disappear. And then you can feed back misinformation so that they're let off the pack and again into decoy information so you can get intelligence about what they're doing. And so it's a very, very early um, activity. So if the attacker's trying to steal the credentials, you can hide the real ones. <laughs> you, you can uh, actually bind the applications in the credential store. So let's say that um, if you were the attacker, you stole my credentials, uh, my Chrome credentials, and you tried to log into my Chrome. If you weren't logging into that with my Chrome browser, it would recognize that you're not using the right application and would deny you the service. And so there is incredibly powerful concealment in traditional deception technology that is essentially being that eyes and ears inside the network to know if anybody is inside and trying to get um, anywhere by escalating their privileges or moving laterally. Speaking of credentials, there is this concept I often tell people because they ask me, hey, you must have a really, really long password or you must have, you know, the all these special characters in your password and so on, right? And I often tell them that that's not the case. In fact, I assume that my credentials have been breached somehow or the other, and the attackers already have my credentials somewhere. And in fact, I'm noticing more and more that a lot of the browsers like Safari uh, will tell you when you log in somewhere with your username and password, whether it's been breached somewhere, and they've seen this data out on the web somewhere as well. So by default, I tell people to make the assumption that your credentials are somehow exposed. What are you seeing out there from that type of messaging? And do you think we're doing enough to get people educated that their credentials are probably compromised somehow? And that at a bare minimum, everywhere they go, they need to either enable multi-factor authentication if they if they have that. And if they don't, they need to make sure they're asking the software providers or or whoever that they're logging into to require multi-factor authentication as a bare minimum? 
Yeah, no, there's definitely layers of defense. I mean, using password vaults is a great idea, you know, so that's one way of helping protect your credentials. And two, yes, pay attention if you are getting notified by your software that your software has been, um, or your password has been compromised, it's a good thing to go in and and reset it. Um, Also, lots and lots of people use duplicate passwords or, you know, certain methodologies to their passwords that once they've seen a few of those passwords, they can guess what they are and get access into the into the other software that you may have. And that is a big problem because, um, you know, oh, well, they only compromised this one on this software. Well, if you use the same password somewhere else, you're just gonna guess, right? You know, and they're gonna be able to figure out how to get in. Um, but it, it does change a lot too. So we have our traditional passwords and yes, we should have good passwords, use vaults, have good password hygiene, definitely use MFA, but don't be overconfident in MFA either because it, it, it doesn't, again, stop. If somebody already is in the system, is compromising, is looking for additional privileges, it may not help you. And in many cases too, people are like, oh my gosh, MFA, it's such a, a, a performance barrier, so I'm just gonna turn it off, right? And so a lot of companies still need to be able to see when their policy says use it, and then people find workarounds in the system, which we do see quite often. But it does go back into, again, those layers of defense around the credentials. And then I would encourage businesses to use the concealment technology so that, especially around your critical um, credentials, you can hide those from the attacker. And then make sure you have the right software in place. And, and a lot of traditional defenses just don't have this attack path visibility to see both from your endpoint. How could you get to, um, say, Active Directory, you know, the main credential store of your company? And, and losing domain control would be terrible. <laughs> yeah, lots of bad things can happen when that, that occurs. So understand what those attack paths look like. But then also like everybody, you're probably moving to the cloud. And that changes a whole bunch of things as well. And now mistakes are being made because everything is entitlements and people get into policies and you get all these non-human identities that are in there and you have this massive explosion of things that people, they just can't understand all of it in a manual way. There's not enough man hours. And so you've got to use this new infrastructure entitlement uh, technology that's out there to automate the gathering and the correlation and the displaying of the information so that you can understand, oops, that person got put into the wrong group. They really shouldn't have privileges to those resources or they shouldn't have the elevated privileges that they've been given so that you can back off to more of a least privilege. And when you do that, you're going to reduce your attack surface and reduce your risk. So Credential management is such a critical piece that people really need to look at it differently. It's one of the things that um, I know we've been talking about for a while at Ativo, but Gartner recently came out with some advisory uh, documentation too around identity threat detection and response that that people will really want to understand and do the things they need to to reduce their credential risks. And it it goes beyond just having a good password and MFA. So I do want to dig into the cloud security and the cloud adoption uh, piece with you. But before I go there, I have a very quick question to get your perspective on something. I was reading somewhere about passwords, especially with organizations that are enforcing periodic password changes and forcing their users to update their password every couple of months or three months seems to be the most common one that I've seen out there. This article was talking about how that, in fact, in a way, kind of hinders your security because your users now focus on building an overly simplistic password that they can remember and make minor changes to over time than truly accomplishing what what the what the intent was of that policy. 
which is to have a strong password being changed every time. Do you have any specific thoughts on that or or have you seen something specific there? Yeah, I, I agree with that sentiment that yeah, it's it's hard, right? You know, we have a hard time remembering all these different and that's where the password vaults become particularly useful. You have your one main password and then it can keep track of all of the other derivatives, which you can't you know, look to force changes or having more complex passwords on it. And I think that's why most of the time a password vault is a really good idea for people to use um, to be able to keep track of all those things. Otherwise, you're writing them down, you're storing them in places that people can read, and that's not going to protect you either. And so I, I do think we've got to keep it simple for the user so that, you know, mistakes are not made or, or like you said, things get overly simplistic. And in most cases, unless they're an administrator password, they're not going to be able to get that far, especially if you understand their attack paths that they can use to get to something more privileged, and you make sure you remove those. And then you take a little bit of the weight off of the individual and more onto the systems. And that's going to be a more accurate and scalable way of, of doing things. And then sure, your admins, and especially your super admins, <laughs> drive them crazy, right? <laughs> you know, have really stringent passwords. But for the most, most people that can't get access into the critical things anyway, there's a balance you probably need to find so that at least you have the, the right balance of, of security without making it so they make other mistakes. So let's go back to talking about cloud adoption. I'm I'm curious what type of conversations you're having with leaders, especially when it comes to making security decisions where we're seeing an overall acceleration in cloud-based technology being adopted, uh, both from a software as a service perspective, platform as a service, and infrastructure as a service. Well, and pretty much everybody is is going to the cloud or in the cloud in, in some way. And you know, it, it has to happen. It's a natural ev evolution of progression and people are, are seeing the need to um, be able to do that to keep competitive. And that's both with the companies adopting the cloud to run their business as well as the vendors and suppliers that are making the technology. If you deliver something through the cloud, you can maintain um, things and make changes more dynamically and more consistently if you're on, only maintaining a cloud version versus a on-prem version. And so a lot of the vendors that, as you looked at a couple of the dynamics, one is what happened with COVID and remote working, right? All of a sudden people weren't in the office. They, they weren't behind your typical, you know, perimeter defense. And it started people looking at, well, how do I deliver my services um, and give my employees service access? And it really fueled the momentum towards cloud. So most companies are operating in a cloud and in a multi-cloud type of environment. And the big challenge there, again, is just to understand that these environments operate differently. Even AWS and Azure operate a little differently. And understand what your company is going to be using, how they're going to be using it, and making sure you've got the right security controls and visibility, right? And the visibility comes in the form of identities and resources, and then being able to make sure you can stay compliant once you are, um, once you're in those environments. And so I do think businesses need to be prepared. Um, I think there is a faster migration um, with all the remote workers today. And I don't think people are going to go back, right, because they can get the services cheaper, faster, they need it sometimes for competitive advantage. And so now it's just a matter of how do you get in front of it? so that you can leverage it without creating additional security risk for your company. So speaking in that vein, 
Um, is there a different way you're encouraging leaders to think about endpoint security? And in particular, you know, often you and I both agree that EDR tools should not be viewed as a silver bullet solution that you can just implement and walk away and be secure. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you've seen the industry evolve when having those discussions and how should leaders be thinking about endpoint security today? Yeah, it's a great question. And there is a lot of conversation going around rethinking the endpoint. Um, endpoint protection and EDR tools were designed for a purpose, a very good purpose of making sure antivirus, being able to protect the endpoint devices themselves. What they were not designed to do was to detect identities. And what we've seen now in a perimeterless world, and you've got so many devices that trying to even know what they are, where they are, you know, are they up to date? Can they be updated in some of the um, environments? Like you take some of the non-Windows systems, the OT, IoT devices, and all of this needs to be looked at very differently. And it's both from how do you protect the device? How do you protect the identity? Um, how do you protect what's connected to those things? And a lot of times the you know, desktop services uh, groups that are looking at the endpoints are thinking about just let me get AV on these systems, like so let me get the ZDR on there. And, and they're good and they do what they're supposed to do, but you can't ask them to do something they were never designed for. And so you have to take a look at, at well, what's going to happen next? Well, we know with the majority of attacks that are coming from endpoints today, especially around ransomware, they're going to compromise a credential and they're gonna go straight for Active Directory. There's numerous examples of this, this happening. Um, Colonial Pipeline, they talk about, started with just one, one credential. You know, the list goes on and on. So if you look at it and say, okay, well then, how do I augment that? And the natural thing, well, I have an identity system. I have identity access management, or maybe I have a privileged access management system, but those are more concerned with the authorization and authentication of the user versus protecting the credentials or the systems that manage them. And so sitting in between uh, EDR and access management is this new category called identity detection and response. And that identity detection and response is specifically protecting the credentials, the privileges, and the systems that manage them like Active Directory so that you can detect the credential theft, theft <laughs> and the uh, privilege escalation activities, um, live attacks on Active Directory, and even um, some of that uh, deception concealment technology that I, I talked about before can actually detect somebody trying to enumerate Active Directory and again, hide the real objects and steer them back with fake information. And that's incredibly powerful. Um, and an example of that would be um, we see red teams all the time, right? And when you can catch them in five minutes versus the 30 hours that it took the EDR tool to find them, you recognize the value of that speed because with how fast an exploit can happen, you need that, right? You need that to be able to prevent ransomware. And I was on a, a panel with a bunch of CISOs a few months back, and, and one of them was talking about a simple, simple domain replication error. Again, there's nothing wrong with the system except for there was an error, a misconfiguration. And within 48 hours, they were done, right? You know, they had already been compromised and the ransomware notes were in, and they had thought they had done everything that they were supposed to do. But if they would have had this identity detection and response technology in place, 
they likely would have been able to detect that enumeration activity than the actual exploitation of Active Directory and been able to stop it because they would have had that defense in depth around the credentials, privilege escalation, and lateral movement activity. So it's something fairly new for 2020 um, for a lot of organizations. Some started last year, but more majority, I'd say, are moving towards it in this year. And it's something that I highly encourage people to take a look at. Excellent. So one thing I want to make sure we talk about before we run out of time is your passion for making sure that the cybersecurity career is more accessible. And, you know, it's an area where we have a lot of demand, especially given the shortage of people in the space. And we're only seeing more and more demand uh, and and less and less supply in, in the space. So what are some ways you're approaching solving this problem and how are you making cybersecurity more accessible to others? Yeah, oh, it's a great question. I mean, as a whole, we've got a skill shortage and it's still disappointing to me. I think I was reading something um, the other day and I think the stat that they quoted was that the women in tech only went up by like 2% last year. And that's not going to get us there, right? We've got to make this more welcoming um, to young professionals to come in. Um, and I understand back when, you know, when I got into to, you know, networking, cybersecurity really wasn't a career or a profession um, that you would have gone to college. But now there is courseware that is available for folks to, to go in and there's cybersecurity degrees that are out there by lots of universities now. And so I think one of the things we can do is, is give the kids that choose to have a career an opportunity to get in. And when we look at having a cybersecurity skills shortage, we have a skills shortage of people that know what they're doing, right? You know, I think we have a lot of folks that are starting to come out of these programs that are still having some challenges in getting hired because they will post an entry-level job, but there's, you know, 52 different requirements for that person to get in. And so I think we need to make it much more welcoming for people to come in, um, even at an intern level or um, a learning level, and give them a chance to start with the beginner jobs and then learn and shadow and um, help them grow and get in on the career. So I guess the number one thing that I would say, aside from obviously making the education available to them, is for organizations to open up and create more junior level jobs and be more welcoming. And, and that can be for um, the kids coming out of school today to other people that are choosing to change um, their professions, right? There's a lot of uh, older workers too that, again, would like to reinvent themselves. They've got a lot of you know uh, experience in other things. They've got the decision-making abilities. They just need an opportunity to go in and learn the cybersecurity workforce uh, environment. And so that's what I would encourage people to do is to, to think about how could I take in some people to do this? And I would love to see it be a de facto thing for every organization is, is that they, they kind of say, hey, part of our requirement as a company is, is we're gonna take in a certain number of new cybersecurity people each year to learn and, and to train up into their roles. It's a very common discussion we have internally here as well. And also with a lot of my clients in terms of the skills shortage. And my view on that actually is a little controversial. I, I personally don't believe there's a skills shortage. I believe there's a flaw in how we are recruiting. So I kind of want to reframe the, the problem that we're facing. And you kind of highlighted a point that I want to make sure we re reiterate. We often see job postings and requirements that are too rigid 
or have too many requirements that don't necessarily make sense for the job at hand. And um, some of my friends and I, we are part of a, a group chat where we share funny cybersecurity things that we see out there. And one that really, really comes to mind was a job posting for a security internship role. But one of the requirements was to have a CISSP certification. And it makes yeah, makes no sense. <laughs> but then you now have recruiters that are trying to match that requirement and reaching out to people with CISSPs. And those people are laughing at the fact that they got offered an internship role at some company uh, in cybersecurity. And they're automatically invalidating applications for other internships because chances are the candidates who could do the job that they're trying to fill for, does, they don't have a CISSP certification. Um, another example that you've probably seen out there, it's been all over LinkedIn, was someone requiring five years of experience in a certain technology. And the the founder of that technology responded to that post saying that he doesn't qualify because he only published that technology three years ago. So he doesn't even have five years <laughs> of experience uh, in that technology space. So my perspective is we have to be more careful about how we are trying to hire people and how we do the recruiting process, because I don't think we have a skills shortage. I think we have a problem in how we are recruiting and the people who are going to be successful, they have to really think very carefully about what they're doing and how they're putting together requirements for, for recruiting. Is there any cybersecurity career myth or any misconceptions that you'd like to bust on this podcast? Wow. Well, you know, I guess if I don't know if it's a myth, I need to think about how I would categorize it. But I, I guess the myth would be is that you, you know, all all people going into cyber have to meet a certain profile, and there are lots of different jobs in cybersecurity, right? So you can work for a cybersecurity company, and they have all the functions right, than any other business would have. And so whether you want to be an engineer coding, or maybe you want to be in support or marketing or sales, um, you know, you, it's not just one thing. And so a lot of folks that may go, hey, I love technology, and I'd put myself into that, that, that thing. I was a terrible coder, I admit it, <laughs> I was not very good at it. But I loved the technology. And so I found other roles that I could do without having to be a great pro, you know, coder or programmer behind it. And I would encourage people to look at that and go, hey, if you like a really fast paced environment where the, the rate of innovation is quite high and the rate of change is high, cybersecurity is a super fun profession to be in. But don't limit your thinking to you know, I've just got to be the guy doing the engineering. It's like you can do any of these other roles and and have a lot of fun with it. And then you know, working for a startup can be it can be draining, a lot of work, but there's a lot of fun there too. And just um, being able to get in early and have an opportunity to learn as you go as well, right? If somebody's getting in new on the ground floor, you know, come in and take a you know take a role that gets them introduced to that new curve in technology and and gain the experience there. One thing that I uh, also often tell people, and this goes back to how you've encouraged a lot of people who may want to pivot 
career paths altogether. They may be more experienced, but they want to get into cybersecurity. I often tell them to think of their area of expertise and how they can get involved with cybersecurity in that area. So if you happen to have a finance background, maybe look at how financial services institutions are dealing with and thinking about cybersecurity. If you have a hardware engineering or embedded systems background, maybe you focus on IoT security first and learn about things there. That often makes the barrier to entry a little bit more achievable versus just trying to start from scratch in a completely new domain that you have no familiarity with. Any thoughts on on that concept? Yeah, no, I think it's a great concept. I actually do a lot of work with Santa Clara University and their executive MBA program. And here you see a lot of folks with very technical backgrounds that are also looking to to um, enhance their business side. And so, um, you know, so you see them kind of crossing over the opposite direction, too. But I do think playing to your strengths and thinking about what you really love to do. Right? You know, are you a big people person and you want to go out and do sales and marketing or help with support? I mean, it, just find and play to your strengths. And, and there is a role in cybersecurity for all, all types of personalities and, and backgrounds and um, try different things. I've seen tons of people move between, you know, technical roles to sales roles to engineering to support roles to, you know, just mixing it all up. And especially if you're, you know, looking at building your career, try different things because some might surprise you. You might have thought, wow, I never envisioned myself like, you know, doing this. And if you would have asked me 30 years ago, would I have been in this role in this way? I, I couldn't have envisioned it at the time. But I'm super happy how it turned out. And and I would say have an open mind and explore. This reminds me of a story I read, and I'm, I'll make sure to send you a copy of it. It was about this uh, red teamer who actually had his mom go on a project with him to do some social engineering work because his mom was really interested in what her son does. And uh, she went into a prison for a red teaming activity, and she went in pretending to be like a full food health and safety inspector for the prison. And it was quite funny. There was quite an extended period of time when they lost communication with her uh, over the project. And he was freaking out on the side thinking she got caught and maybe she's in trouble and she he doesn't know what to do. But what ended up happening was the warden pulled her aside and they were asking her for more advice on what they could be doing better. And she spent an extra half an hour giving them advice on things they could change, et cetera, completely making it up on the spot. But it's a really fun story just to goes to show you, you don't need to be a coder or deep technical to be in the cybersecurity space. There's lots of opportunities in, in various fields like social engineering as well. Well, uh, Carolyn, uh, before we wrap up, uh, we always like to talk to our guests about non-security stuff. So beyond advocating for security, uh, and I'm sure you have very limited free time, but what are some things you enjoy doing uh, during that limited free time? Yeah, so I'm a big outdoors person, so I, I definitely enjoy anything outdoors, especially uh, you know, on the water, whether it be uh, running or snow, uh, frozen. So I'm a, I'm a big outdoor fan. I think it's great. We do spend a lot of times attached to our computers and to Zoom, so it's always nice to get out and and just move, right? You know, do things and move around. And so I would say uh, when my, uh, <laughs> you know, my work doesn't keep me busy, my family doesn't keep me busy, the dogs don't keep me busy, um, you know, I'm out probably found on a mountain or a lake somewhere. Is there a specific water-based activity that you enjoy doing the most? 
I love water skiing, unfortunately. And for those that like had you know seen me at RSA on crutches and stuff, I blew up my knee skiing a couple of years ago. So I'm still rebuilding, <laughs> you know, the knee after completely tearing it apart. But um, but yeah, when uh, hopefully this summer I'll get back out and uh, and be water skiing a bit. But in the interim, I can still snow ski, so I'm pretty jazzed about that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for your time and your insights and your thoughts. Really, really do appreciate it. And hopefully, I'll get to see you at RSA or some other event uh, really soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. It'll be fun to see people face to face again. Thank you so much. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.